Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we call out to you tonight. We call out to you that you will bless us, that you will sustain us, that you will teach us, that you will not leave us to ourselves, but that in everything we do, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord, and that we come to a greater understanding of who you are and what you are like. You've been very, very good to us, very kind to us. We woke up this morning, and we had something to eat, and we had clothes to put on our backs. We weren't out in the rain. We all have cars to drive and money to put gas in the tank. You've been very good to us. And 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to the planet And he died for us. And based on that death, we have the hope and the surety and the promise of our eternal salvation. Because you've been very good to us. So now as we look into your word, help us, enlighten us, draw us, and help us remember that Everything we are, everything we know, everything we have is a gift from you. Cause us to be thankful and gracious people. And yours, we know, is the kingdom. And yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Several months ago, I left it up to you all to decide what book we were going to teach through next on Wednesday nights. A mistake I probably won't make again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you all decided that you wanted the book of Ezekiel. We had already gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we had gone through Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And then uh, we reached that point in 2 Kings where we taught through the minor prophets. And then I said, well, we ought to do a major prophet next. And, and you all chose Ezekiel. My concern when you guys decided Ezekiel was the way to go is that I knew at some point we were going to hit the center of Ezekiel, pretty much where we are right now. And that was a concern to me. You can turn to Ezekiel 25, because that's where we're going to be. But this part of Ezekiel, admittedly, gets kind of dry. And the reason that it's hard to preach this part of Ezekiel is that there aren't a whole lot of details that directly have to do with us. This is about God, through his prophet, talking to nations that don't exist anymore. So at least we can see God's prophetic voice coming through as God declares his judgment against these various nations. These are seven different nations that surround Jerusalem. And now that God has taken the Israelites and the Jews out of their territory and into the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, the surrounding nations looking to make a land grab are anxious to see Israel fall. And so they've mocked Israel. And in their mocking, they have inspired the ire, the anger, the wrath of God. Because God doesn't like it when you mock what he's doing, even if what he is doing looks to be problematic or destructive or harmful He is an absolutely sovereign God. He's an absolute holy and righteous God who knows what he's doing because all his ways are known to him from the beginning. And so he knows what he's doing. And even if what he is doing is saying to a group of people, you are my group of people, you're you're my elect group, I've given you my standards, my laws, 
I've given you prophets and revelation of myself. I've given you all that. You haven't been obedient to me. You've chased your other gods. You've, you haven't kept my Sabbaths. And therefore, I'm angry at you. So I'm going to drive you out of the land so the land can enjoy its Sabbaths. And I'm going to drive you into Babylon as a way of punishing you for the way that you have not obeyed me. And you start mocking toward what God has done. Well, then God's mad at you. Because God cannot be mocked in any of the things he does, no matter what. He is a sovereign, righteous, holy God who does exactly what he wants to do, and nobody has the right to ask him, what are you doing? Nobody can stop his hand, and nobody can question his decisions. So while he's busy pouring out punishment on Israel, not to destroy them, but for the purpose of correcting them, the surrounding nations have begun mocking what has happened in Israel. And so God tells Ezekiel, now go prophesy against those nations one by one, and we're going to tell each of those nations of their coming destruction because they have been enemy to my people and because now they're mocking the pain that my people are being put through and therefore, go tell them, I'm going to destroy them. So, I've done the research to have a little bit of background on each of these seven nations. I can tell you some details about the way that they've interacted with Israel and why they probably deserve, after the physical human observation, why they deserve some punishment from God. But in the end, we just kind of have to look at all this and say, that's what God did. God just simply decided that he was going to punish his people. He was going to correct his people. And then the nations that mocked, he's also going to destroy. And in so doing, he's going to prove that he is God. Because with each of these, he says to the, to the nation, You've done this, and because you've done this, therefore, I'm going to do this. And it ends always with, and you'll know that I'm God. And so that's kind of the lesson that he's teaching those nations. So where does this all come from? Turn to Genesis 12. The first three verses of Genesis 12 should be God saying to Abraham, those that bless you, I'm going to bless and those that curse you, I'm going to curse. That is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant doesn't change. It can't be altered. And so this principle is put in place. Those that give you or your descendants a bad time, I'm going to curse them. And if they take care of you, I'm going to bless them. So let's read that out of Genesis 12. And then we'll add something else to it. And maybe we can get the principle that's being implemented here in Ezekiel. So let's start here. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We know that's the Abrahamic covenant. And in telling Abram, he says to him, those that bless you, I'm going to bless, and those that curse you, I'm going to curse. Okay, there's a principle that's laid out. And the nations that we're going to see in the next couple of chapters of Ezekiel have cursed Israel. Israel has now been taken out of their land. And they are now starting to mock God and curse those people. You're going to see that God is going to say, because you did that, therefore I'm going to do. But I believe it's based on the continuity of the promises of God, that God has promised that he's going to protect Israel. And whoever curses them, God's going to curse them. Now, when you get into the New Testament, let's see if my old memory is working. Matthew 25, starting around verse 31, 32, I think that's where I want to be. If you would look that up for me, Steve. That should be the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And if you look at that, Jesus says that he's going to separate nations. And he uses the word ethnos there. He's going to separate the nations and he's going to put some on his right hand and on his left. And when he says to the ones on his left, 
that they saw him naked and they didn't clothe him. They saw him hungry. They didn't feed him. They didn't come and visit him when he was in prison. They're going to ask, when did we ever see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? And he said, whenever you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Well, he had not died and buried and resurrected yet. The church was not in existence yet. So when he talks about national identity, since this is a separation of nations, and then talks about my brethren, he has to be talking about Israelites, the Jews. Those, those are his brethren. So here again, you get an example of Jesus being very specific and God being very specific about their protective qualities of Israel. How you treat Israel, how you treat the brethren of Christ, also is going to reflect on how you are going to be punished, how you are going to be afflicted by God for your failure to treat the ones that he has chosen correctly. Does that make sense? Did that sentence come out correctly? Would you read that for us, Steve, uh, from chapter 25? Was I right? It's about 31 it starts. 31. Do you want to read through the end of the chapter? Sure, why not? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom I prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So now, of course, people do preach that and try to put it in the context of the church and say that when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, it's his elect that are the ones on his right hand and the non-elect on the left side. But I think when, within context of when he was saying it, the only people who would understand the kingdom language that he brings up in there would be the Israelites, the Jews that he came to. Those are the only ones that can be identified as his brethren at that point in time. And as Steve pointed out there, it's a separation of nations. And so if it's a separation of nations between the ethnos, then the ones that are his brethren would be the Israelites. All I'm trying to get at is whether that is a correct understanding of, or let's assume that's a correct understanding of uh, Matthew 25, then it correlates with the Abrahamic covenant. And you see Old and New Testament, you see God continuing to be faithful to Israel. You certainly see that when you get into the book of Revelation, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. You continue to see God's continuity to the people of Israel. And you see that those people, those nations that work against Israel, God ends up cursing. So that ought to be a warning. And here in the middle of Ezekiel, starting at Ezekiel 25, we're going to see God saying that exact thing. Here you are mocking what I'm doing with my people as I'm correcting them, as I'm taking them through this Babylonian captivity, which isn't permanent, and I'm going to bring them back here, and I'm going to give them their land in perpetuity because that's what I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet in the midst of my doing all that, you have mocked me for doing it, and therefore I'm going to curse you for doing it. 
And as we're going to see, as we work our way through these nations, uh, they don't exist anymore, which is kind of a good indication that God has, in fact, acted on the curses that he's laid out against them. If we were going to extract a principle from that, I would say, watch what you say about Israel. That seems like a good practice. These are God's people. God is still in the midst of dealing with them. God is still in the enterprise of of being faithful to his people. Thank God that he's been faithful to us. Thank you that he's adopted us, elected us, brought us into the family of faith. Wonderful. I'm thankful he did that. But if you say, well, then he brought me in because he's done with Israel, well, then you're starting to do the very kind of mocking that these nations ended up in so much trouble for. Ezekiel pronounces a curse on seven different countries that have contributed to Judah's downfall. Now, the first three are going to be Ammon and Moab and Edom, who we've heard about in the book of Daniel, and we know that the Jews are going to flee there during the seven-year tribulation. But they are the nations that lay on the east side of Judah. The fourth nation, Philistia, was on her western boundary area. Tyre and Sidon are cities of Phoenicia, and they were the principal powers north of Judah. And then Egypt was the major power to the south and southwest. So those are the seven nations, all of them surrounding Israel and surrounding Jerusalem. Those are the seven nations that God is going to prophesy against. What's interesting is that chapter 25 encompasses four of them. Ammon and Moab, Edom and Philistia are all in this chapter. But then you get to Tyre and God lays out a couple chapters on Tyre. Uh, Not only... Does he start in chapter 26 by predicting the downfall of Tyre? But then the next chapter is almost like a funeral dirge for Tyre. And there's an explanation of Tyre's guilt. And so God really spends some time on talking about the guilt of Tyre. And then kind of the same thing with Egypt, because they are the major powers laying to the north and to the south of of Israel. So Ezekiel's first four prophecies each cited the sin that prompted God's judgment and then describes what the judgment's going to be. And like I said, that's the because you did this, therefore pattern that you're going to see all the way through this chapter. So let's start with chapter 25, verse 1. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon, and prophesy against them. Let me tell you a little bit about who Ammon is in case you forget who Ammon is. Ammon was singled out to head this list of national judgment because Ammon and Israel had been in conflict ever since the time of Jephthah. You might remember as we were going through First and Second Kings that Ammon came down on Israel during the period even all the way back to the Judges. Saul fought with the Ammonites to rescue Jabeth-Gilead. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 11. David conquered Ammon. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 19. And after the death of Solomon, the Ammonites regained their independence and renewed their hatred toward Judah. So during Jehoshaphat's reign, the Ammonites joined the Moabites and the Edomites And they all attacked Judah together. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. So Ammon tried to expand her territory at Israel's expense. And she even initially sided with Nebuchadnezzar in their attempt to gain additional territory after Jehoiakim's revolt, which would have been right around 600 B.C., In 593 B.C., Ammon joined a secret meeting of other potential conspirators to consider rebelling against Babylon. And even though that plan never really came together, in 588, she did unite with Judah and Tyre against Babylon. So two ancient enemies, Judah and Ammon, actually ended up joining forces against their common foe, which was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, And when 
Nebuchadnezzar decided to attack Judah instead of Ammon, which we read about in Ezekiel 21, Ammon was relieved that she had been spared. And instead of coming to Judah's aid, after having made all of these deals with her, she instead rejoiced over Judah's misfortune, hoping to profit off of Judah's destruction. So God's judgment actually fits Ammon's sin. They rejoiced over Judah's downfall, so they're going to fall. God sent them to a people of the east who were nomadic desert tribesmen and gave them as a possession. So these nomads came and ultimately overran the Ammonites, turning Rabbah, which is Ammon's capital city, into a pasture for camels. And Ammon is a resting place now for sheep. Because of Ammon's malice toward Israel, Ammon was plundered by the other nations and destroyed or cut off. Well, now let's read what the curse from God is, because that's exactly what came of them. Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon and prophesy against them and say to the sons of Ammon, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary, I should tell you that that's a term of derision. They're making fun of Israel in this term, aha, look, they've fallen. See what's been done to Israel. Because you have said, aha, against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel, when it was made desolate, and against the house of Judah, when they went into exile, therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for a possession. And they will set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. And I shall make Rabbah a pasture for camels. And the sons of Ammon will be a resting place for flocks. And thus you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, here's an interesting theological reality. Because we like to think that the way that God demonstrates himself, the, the very loving, imaginary, marshmallow-type God who only wants good for everybody, that that God, the way he demonstrates himself is that he brings good blessings to people. And so that's the way he says, see, I'm the Lord. I just gave you perfect health and plenty of money and everything you ever wanted and a new car and a bigger house and everybody's going to have perfect health all the time because I'm God. But... Here God is demonstrating who he is and what he's like and how holy he is by wiping out an entire people group. For what purpose? So you'll know I'm God. And by the way, I'm going to have my prophet Ezekiel come tell you that that's what I'm going to do to you so that when it happens, you have to recognize I'm God. I'm the one who said this is going to happen. I'm the one that empowered it to happen. I'm the one that determined it was going to happen. And now that it has happened, why did it happen? Because of me. Because I'm God. God demonstrates himself certainly in love, certainly in kindness, certainly in blessings. I'm not discounting any of that. But if you think that's the only way that God demonstrates himself, then you have a truncated concept of what God is, what God's like, how God acts. The God who is absolutely sovereign does whatever he wants and everything he does is a demonstration of who he is. So when he brings trouble, well, that's because he's God. When he brings blessings, well, that's because he's God. When he brings understanding, that's because he's God. When he darkens people's understanding, that's because he's God. You go into the New Testament and it says that God is going to bring people a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and be damned. Why? He's God. So blessings and cursings, all the goodness and the blessings and the hardships all come from God and they are all a demonstration that he is, in fact, God. And he's perfectly willing to demonstrate himself as being God in both aspects. All the... The various aspects of his personality are on display in the way that he is. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet 
and rejoiced with all the scorn of your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you. I shall give you for a spoil to the nations, and I shall cut you off from the peoples and make you perish from the lands, and I shall destroy you, and thus you will know that I am the Lord. So that's the judgment on Ammon. Anybody met an Ammonite lately? Nope. Anybody met a, a, a foreigner? You say, hey, where are you from? And they go, Ammon. I'm an Ammonite. Anybody met an Ammonite? Nope. No, no. Where did the Ammonites go? Gone. Who got rid of the Ammonites? God. God. God destroyed the Ammonites. They're gone. As a people group, gone. <clears throat> Next is Moab. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, behold, the house of Judah is like all nations. Notice what they just did. They conflated Judah, Judah who are the people of God, the chosen of God, the elect nation of God, the people group that God has revealed himself to, the people group who have been told by God how he expects to be worshipped, the place where God placed his name, they said, oh, look, now that they've been taken into captivity, they're just like everybody else. And because they said that, behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Well, therefore, behold, I am going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities, which are on its frontier, the glory of the land, Beth-Jeshemoth, Baal-Meon, and Kiriathim. And I will give it for a possession, along with the sons of Ammon, to the sons of the east, that the sons of Ammon may not be remembered among the nations. And thus I will execute judgment on Moab, and they will know that I am the Lord. Let's talk about Moab for a second. Because the hostility between Moab and Israel began back when Balak, the king of Moab, tried to oppose Israel while Moses was leading them through the, toward the land of Palestine. During the time of the judges, Israel was oppressed by Eglon, who was the king of Moab. You can read about that back in Judges 3. Relations between the countries improved slightly after that, and some of the Israelites went to Moab during a famine through this contact, Ruth, the Moabitess, entered into Israel's history and into the royal bloodline of David. The relationship between Moab and Israel again deteriorated during Saul's reign. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 14. David conquered Moab and made it into a vassal state of Israel. It remained under Israel's control through Solomon's reign, and Moab rebelled against Israel years after Israel and Judah split during Jehoshaphat's regime. So Moab united with Ammon and Edom in that ill-fated attempt to defeat Judah that I mentioned earlier, also during Jehoshaphat's reign. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 20. And later, Moab supported Babylon while they attacked Judah. After Jehoiakim's revolt, Moab's sin, Ezekiel said, was her contempt of God's nation. Moab and Seir said, look, the house of Judah has become just like all the other nations. Seir is the name of the mountain range that's south of the Dead Sea that encompassed the country of Edom. And the word became synonymous with the land of Edom. So we're talking about Edom. We're talking about Seir, that area and those people groups that were inside it. They became the Edomites. Edomites are included here with Moab, though their judgment comes next, because they're guilty of the exact same sin of envy and contempt. And in their scorn, Moab and Edom are denying God's promises to Israel. So by minimizing Judah's position of being central among the nations, they're actually profaning the name of God who had promised Judah that they always would be the center of the nations. So you also saw the reference to uh, the northern flank that was going to be attacked. That's exactly what happened in history. 
uh, God destroyed three towns, Beth, Jeshemoth, Balmaon, and Kiriathim. And in addition to losing her defenses, Moab also became conquerable, became attackable. So God gave Moab to the people of the east, and nomadic desert tribesmen overran Ammon and also overran Moab. So, in other words, all those details, whether or not you remember those details, just remember that God said, this is going to happen, and then in human history, it happened. If God says, I'm going to destroy you, well, then you're going to be destroyed. And if he says, I'm going to give you over to people of the east, that's exactly what happened to them. The third of them is Edom, starting in verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah... By taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it. And I will lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan and they will fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of the people Israel, and therefore they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, like Ammon and Moab, Edom was involved in a long series of conflicts with Israel. The strife actually began when Edom refused to let Israel cross into her territory during the time of their wilderness wandering. And Saul fought the Edomites, and David finally captured Edom and made it into a vassal state to Israel. Solomon further exploited Edom and established Elath in Edom as Israel's seaport. But Edom opposed Solomon during the latter part of his reign, and the nation continued as a vassal state for Israel and Judah and was controlled by a governor from Judah until the time of Jehoshaphat. In the days of Jehoram, so roughly 845 B.C., Edom successfully rebelled against Judah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 8, and they regained their freedom. And thereafter, Judah and Edom fought constantly to see who would control the vital caravan and shipping routes of the southeast end of the Transjordan area and highway. So they were constantly at conflict with each other. So Ezekiel said Edom's sin was that she took vengeance out on the house of Judah. Edom saw that Judah's conflict with Babylon was an opportunity to oppose her rival. So uh, their thinking was that if their foe was destroyed... If Judah was destroyed, then Edom could achieve a place of power at the southeast end of the Dead Sea, and they would control all the trade routes. And so they liked the idea that Babylon was busy destroying Jerusalem. So perhaps Dedan was mentioned here because some of the Edomites were living there, but Edom was conquered by the Nabataeans during the intertestamental period. The remnants of the Edomites, also called Edomians, moved west into the Negev. By the way, um, uh, Herod, who was the king in Israel when Jesus walked on the planet, Herod was not a Jew, as you've heard me say time and time again. He was an Edomian, which is why the people disliked Herod so very much. But during the intertestamental period, that means that 400 years where God was silent between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, during that period, they just kind of disappear and are sucked up into other people groups, and some are killed in war, and they just disappear. The remnant of the Edomites moved to the Negev, and later they were forced to become Jewish converts, according to Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. So the Edomites lost both their country and their national identity. God said Israel would bring his vengeance against the Edomites. And as a result, the Edomites would come to know or experience the vengeance of God. So they took vengeance against Israel. God likewise took vengeance against them. Are you bored out of your mind yet? I find this stuff fascinating. 
If you don't remember any of the details, we've only got one more city to go through tonight. But if you remember none of the details, I just hope that you leave here thinking, wow, God does what he says he's going to do. If God says he's going to be good to people, he's good to people. And if he says he's going to destroy people, he destroys those people. God does what he says he's going to do because he's, what's that word? Oh, sovereign. Because he's completely and utterly in charge. So even if the details don't really matter to you, just remember that these are people groups that afflicted Israel and Judah. And when God took them into the Babylonian captivity, he then turned his attention to those nations for the way that they afflicted his people. And then he pours out his vengeance on the people who afflicted his people, even while he's busy afflicting his people. That's really, really sovereign. That's really hard to wrap your brain around. Here, I can make it easy for you. I have two kids. And if I decide to discipline my kids when they were younger. Yeah, not, not when they were as big as they are now. And when they can conspire against me and say, hey, dad, where are you going to live? And so, but when they were smaller and I could take them in a fair fight, because yeah. I can take any man twice my height and half my weight. And so, good, I'm glad you enjoyed that. So when I disciplined my kids, that's between me and my kid. And if I discipline my kid and you think, oh, good, it's time to discipline James, and you try to join in, I'm now going to turn from disciplining him to defending him against you because I'm his dad. I have the right to discipline him because I'm going to discipline him with the appropriate fatherly love. And I know why I'm disciplining him and what I want the discipline to accomplish. You don't know all that. You're just thinking beat up James. Which I don't want. Which he doesn't want. <laughs> and so I am going to turn from disciplining him to disciplining you for thinking you can discipline my child. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, that's essentially what God is doing. He is disciplining the children of Israel, his elect and chosen nation. He's disciplining them. And when the surrounding nations go, oh, boy, it's time to beat up on Israel, God says, no. No, they're mine. They're still mine. I'm still doing this out of sovereign love. This is ultimately going to redound to their good. All the promises I've made them are all still good. But I'm disciplining them in order to make them my people. And then when you join in, I'm going to discipline you and defend them so that you know that I'm still their God. And that's the way the God of the Bible works. Okay, there, now that I've engaged your minds and brought you back to theological realities, I'm going to bore you with some more details, and then we'll call it a night. Okay? Philistia, which is, of course, where the Philistines come from. We hear about the Philistines all the way through the Old Testament. We know plenty about the Philistines. Thus says the Lord God. Because the Philistines have acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, even cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. And I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. And they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance on them. There's a lot to say, obviously, about the Philistines. The Philistines had been Israel's enemy really from the very beginning of the conquest of the land of Israel. Israel had failed to take all of the promised land because they disobeyed God and because the Philistines' military superiority on the coastal plain had kind of routed them and given them a difficult time. So the Philistines moved into the hill country in an attempt to control all the territory of Israel, and they were opposed by the judges. You can read about 
the wars all the way back to Judges 3. Samson dealt with the Philistines. Samuel dealt with the Philistines. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 7. Saul's major battles in Israel were designed to check the Philistines when they would advance on central Benjamin. There were fights in the Jezreel Valley you can read about between the Jews and the Philistines. So David finally subdued the Philistines. And after a series of battles early in his reign, he blunted a Philistine challenge to his kingdom. But David was able to go on the offensive and finally beat the Philistines. So Philistia remained a vassal country through the reign of Solomon and into the separation between the northern and southern kingdoms. But the battle between Philistia and Judah was then renewed during that time as each country tried to control each other. And Jehoshaphat was able to dominate Philistia. But ultimately they revolted against the sons of Jehoram and they sacked Judah and Jerusalem. Uzziah reestablished Judah's control over Philistia. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 26. But Philistia again gained the upper hand during Ahaz's reign. In other words, this was just a constant back and forth, which is the reason that we read so much about the Philistines in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar established finally control over both countries. But the, the rivalry remained, and Philistia waited for an opportunity to try to conquer Judah again, because this is what they'd been doing forever. They're just constantly locked in warfare with each other. So Ezekiel actually kind of places his finger right on Philistia's underlying sin. She acted in vengeance, and she took revenge with malice. And with an ancient hostility, she sought to destroy Judah. So Philistia's history includes a string of attacks on God's chosen people as they tried to dispossess Israel of the promised land. So because Philistia had tried to destroy Judah, God would destroy Philistia. He would stretch out his hand against the Philistines, cut off the Carathites, and destroy those who were along the seacoast. During the intertestamental period, the Philistines disappeared as a nation. This nation has tried to usurp God's people over and over again, and yet they ended up discovering God's true nature by the way God ultimately destroys them from all of history. Let's take the same test we took earlier. Anybody met a Philistine lately? Nope. Not, not a person who seems like a Philistine. I've met lots of those. Who is this unwashed Philistine? <laughs> we all know them. But anybody met a foreigner lately and said, hey, hi, where are you from? I'm a Philistine. I'm from Philistia. No, you haven't because they don't exist anymore. They're gone. God just wiped them out. And what's his reason for taking them off the planet, for destroying them as a people group? What's his reason? Because they took vengeance against God's chosen people. God decided who his people were. He revealed himself to his people. He gave his people promises. He gave his people covenants. And having determined that those were his people, he has spent the time, put in the effort to teach and instruct and correct those people. He has made promises to those people. He's made them the test case in human history of how God views humankind, what the anthropology of God is like, and what the holiness of God is like. And we learn all of that through how God deals with Israel. And when people come up against Israel, then the Abrahamic covenant kicks in. The ones that bless you, I'm going to bless. And the ones that curse you, I'm going to curse. And it carries all the way into the New Testament we see it from Jesus. We certainly see it from the, the prophets of the New Testament. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see the ultimate recreation of the kingdom that God has promised Israel all the way through the Bible. So I say all that just to say, I could have saved you the entire last hour and just said to you, God's for Israel. You find it constantly in the Bible over and over again. So a smart person would be for Israel. Instead of being against Israel, a smart person would recognize that they're still the people of God. Let me make this one last theological application, and we'll call it a night. God gave Israel 
promises, covenants, prophets, oracles, the law. He revealed himself to them. He sent them leaders. And it is through Israel that ultimately Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came. Salvation, says Jesus himself, is of the Jews. Okay, so knowing all that, if God could turn his back on them, if God could give up on them, what confidence do you have? Where are you going to find your confidence if you know that God has a history of choosing people and revealing himself to people, making promises to people, sending prophets and covenants, and, and then God just one day changed his mind. He got up one day and said, all right, those people really are that bad. They're really much worse than I thought they were going to be, and therefore, I'm done with them. I'm going to turn all my attention now to the Gentile church. That's where all of my interest is now. Forget Israel. I don't care about them anymore. Where do you find confidence in that? Only if God is absolutely consistent in his promises, in his love, in his restoration of Israel, only then can you have any confidence that he's not going to wake up one day and think about you and say, I didn't think he'd be that bad. I didn't think she'd be like that. I said I was going to save her. I sent my son to die for her, but man, I didn't know this was going to happen. And then he gives up on you. Then he says, forget it. Never mind. Well, I don't need a God like that. Uh, I can condemn myself by myself just fine, thank you. But I need a God that saves. I need a God that does absolutely everything necessary for my full, complete, enduring, everlasting salvation. That I need. And I need a God who is consistent in all his promises and all his ways. And I need a God who says to Israel, I'm going to be your God forever, and then is their God forever. I need that. It's okay with me that he's wiped out people groups that are his enemies. Uh, I shouldn't say it's okay with me in a flippant way. Ah, he wiped out whole people groups. Whee! That's, that's not my point. My point is, from a theological standpoint, it's okay with me that God has wiped out people groups that were never his to start with. But if you can show me anywhere in the Bible where God ever gave up on somebody that he said was his then I'm done. My faith is over. I got no more confidence. But what we see consistently all the way through the Bible is God is consistent in the way that he is faithful to his people. And that should give you a great deal of joy and a great deal of confidence. And it should make you able to stand up against this world and say, no, I stand on the reality of the Bible because the God of the Bible shows himself to be faithful. Make sense? It does. There, I got application out of it. (laughs) So good. We took one of the more difficult chapters of Ezekiel, and we worked our way through it. Questions? I do have a question. uh, Those people groups, Ammon, uh, Moab, Edom, that say are wiped out and no longer there. We also talk about the future where uh, there will be people in Judea fleeing to those locations. How, if those are no longer there, where are they fleeing to? The people groups are no longer there. The areas still exist. For instance, are you familiar with Petra? Yes. Yeah, well, Petra, which is abandoned by any people group and is basically a tourist center now, exists in the area of, I think that's Edom. Edom. Huh? Edom. Yeah. So those areas they still exist. Where those places used to be, that's where you go. Right. It's still identifiable. Yeah. They're still identifiable geographic regions. And importantly, here's the important of that. When Jesus says, when you see the um, abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee into the wilderness. Because Edom and Moab and Ammon lay right east, that is the wilderness area now just east of Jerusalem, If you live in Jerusalem, you know where those areas are. And so here's Jesus saying, go there. You'll be protected there. They know where those areas are, even if the people group is gone. You can't really flee west anyways. 
can't flee west, you get real wet real fast. So you kind of you have, to, have to flee east. Yes, ma'am. Is there any significance in the fact that Proverbs talks about, like I'm linking random things here, but like Proverbs talks about the seven sins, and then Israel's exiled, and then there are the seven nations surrounding them, and they have their each sin, and so there's like these seven sins. Yeah, throughout the Bible you see a lot of sevens. Yeah. For the numerologists in the crowd, seven becomes the number of completion in the Bible, the same way that six is the number of man, and on the sixth day man was made, and the number of the ultimate Antichrist, 666. And so you see six as the number of man, one is the number of God, man plus God, completion. And so is there significance to that seven and the seven that we find here among the seven nations? If there is significance to be had, I don't know that I've uncovered it yet. It exists. I mean, it's, I don't think it's by chance. I don't think it's haphazard. I think God did that by design. But what the message is behind it, I don't know. Does that make sense? So if you know what the message is, then by all means tell the rest of us or you're holding out on us. You got nothing? <laughs> we have a prophet. Then she needs to write a book. Then she needs to write a book. You'll become rich. Did I ever tell you I'm about to write? I'm working on it. it it's going to be the most popular Christian book ever. It's about time. <laughs> it is. It's, it's going to be the most popular Christian book ever ever written. I don't have any content yet, but I have a title. Yeah, it's going to be called The Prayer of Jabez for the Purpose Driven Left Behind. <laughs> and it's, it's going to sell like crazy. It's just going to sell. Anyway. That's such an old joke, but I yanked it out again and it worked. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye! Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.